And I would like <gasps> to introduce our guest oh, teacher this morning, man. Megan Dobras. Yes. Thank you, Faith. Pastor of Career and Calling at Bethany Green Lake here College. with us this morning. College and career, not calling. You're on your own if you don't know what you're doing with your life. But if you're in college... I'm going to let Megan take it from here. Yeah, probably for the best. Um, it's like a wind tunnel. Can you shift that a little bit, please? I know Brad is a warmer human being than I am. He just runs a little bit hotter. Oh, wow. Oh, thanks. Um, hi. Good to be with you guys. Um, as Faith said, if, if we haven't met before, I am the pastor of college and career over at Green Lake. Um, I was chatting with Brad via text yesterday about, like, oh, what are you doing with your free time? Uh, and he said that he and Carrie were heading to Suncadia and that this was the first vacation that they've had without Judah since Judah was born, which was 20 months ago. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know how many vacations I've gone on in the last two years? Like, a ton without kids. It's been awesome. Uh, and, I mean, kids are great, obviously, right? Like, we all love kids, but they're... They're like kind of a hindrance on vacation, right? You can't do stuff because either they're too short to ride the rides or they're too slow or they need naps or whatever. So it's just crazy. I, um, my nephew stays with me in the summer, and he's 12, and he's a special, special kid. Uh, but we went on a bike ride last week, two weeks ago, and he, you know, I was running because you can't go on a bike ride as an adult with another child and expect to get any exercise because they, they're slow. And so I was running so I could get exercise and he was biking. And at one point, he's like crying as I'm pushing him up the hill on his bike while I'm running. And I was like, when are you going to do this on your own? It's crazy. So I'm so glad. All this to say, I'm so glad that Brad and Carrie have some time away. I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, certainly praying for them to have lots of rest because they certainly deserve it. So uh, today we're continuing in our Summer Shorts Sermon Series, uh, which is, we're considering, as, as Faith read so wonderfully, the, the book of Haggai. So Haggai is just two chapters, so we could probably just read it together and, and call it good. But Haggai, like the previous three books that, that we've looked at, Jonah, Joel, and Amos, is part of the Minor Prophets section. Uh, so he is also that. There's not a ton that's known about Haggai as a person or as a messenger of God. Uh, other than that, we have a book that bears his name, and then he's also mentioned in Ezra, uh, which makes sense because they were contemporaries. They're both prophets at the same time. But other than that, like we don't know much about him at all. Uh, throughout the book of, of Haggai, to get the attention of his listeners, he uses this phrase, this really authoritative phrase, this is what the Lord Almighty says, and then he'll say something. So it kind of catches your attention, like, these are God's words. Uh, and so then he goes on, of course, to give the message of the Lord. And so this morning, I think that uh, it would be helpful to look at three of the main things that this is what the Lord Almighty says. So those three things, the first one is you, speaking to Israel, say that it's not the right time to build my temple. The second is give careful thought to your ways. And the third is I am with you. So let's pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you guide us, that your word from centuries ago still has application to us today. I thank you for this congregation. Thank you for Brad and Carrie, and pray that they get rest and have a good time connecting with each other, uh, but know that they miss us, as Brad was texting Tim and I really early this morning checking in. So Lord, we pray for rest for them. We pray for your word to be heard today, and that we would know as individuals and as a community how to respond to what it is that you're calling us to. 
In your name, amen. So straight out the gate, chapter 1, verse 2, the, the Lord Almighty says you, and again, he's talking to Israel, say that it's not the right time to build my temple. So perhaps uh, a short history reminder might be helpful here. Haggai was written in roughly 539 BC or BCE, depending on what you prefer, uh, which is right after the Babylonian exile. So you might remember that the Judeans went into exile because they made a bunch of poor choices, which included worshiping other gods and kind of showing off their wealth to other countries. And uh, it says in 2 Kings that they became more evil than the nations that God spared them from, so he sent them into exile. So they really had gone off on their own path. And so after they'd been in exile for 70 years in Babylon, that was prophesied in Jeremiah 29.10, so that's like the verse right before the one everybody knows, uh, Babylon was conquered by the Persian king, King Cyrus, who said, like, I don't care if you're here anymore, Israelites, you can go back whenever you want. So it took um, about 110 years for all those who would go back to go back. So not everybody went, but 110 years it took them to, to get back. So when we get to the book of Haggai, about three-quarters of those who would go back are back. They're, they're living in Jerusalem. So when Haggai comes on the scene in Jerusalem, he sees that the temple, which was destroyed when the Babylonians came through, it has not been rebuilt. It's just kind of the, the platform is there, the foundation is there, but, but nothing else. Um, and God had told Israel in other books, like, hey, as soon as you get back, what I want you to do is prioritize rebuilding my temple. Like, that's the most important thing. So it's been about 20 years since the first folks got there and returned. So according to Ezra 3.8, when they initially got back, they started building the temple right away. But then work stopped, and for about 15 years, the, it's just been the same. Like, nothing has been touched. Kind of, again, this, like, raised platform that's just hanging out. Uh, the reason that they stopped building the temple is that everything in Jerusalem was destroyed. You know, we know the book of Nehemiah, the gates and the wall were, were destroyed. Their houses were all destroyed. Like, everything's kind of in rubble and needs to be rebuilt, particularly, of course, their own houses. So instead of working on the temple, as they were instructed to do, they're working on their own homes. Uh, what bugs God and Haggai so significantly is that those who returned knew what they were supposed to do, obviously build the temple, and they didn't, but they're still like walking by it. So it's as if they're just, you know, walking by this nothing that they knew they were supposed to do and they're totally cool with it. Like, it doesn't bother them that they're not doing what God told them to do. They're not phased by it at all. It doesn't seem to bother them that they don't have a place of worship, that they don't have a place where at that time the glory of the Lord resided in the temple. So there's no place for the Lord to reside. And again, they're not being obedient, and they're totally cool with that, which is really what bugs God and Haggai, that they're not like, oh, sorry, I meant to do that. They're just like, yep, didn't do it. Uh, it's not that they don't love the Lord. It's not that they don't love their culture uh, or their people. It's just that they feel more compelled to build their own homes than to build God's house, to take care of themselves first. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that in just a minute. Oh, shoot, it turned into 15 years. So they haven't been doing it for 15 years. Um, I think most likely this me first mentality, like I'll build my house first and then get to your house, was driven less by a heart of, of blatant disobedience and more out of fear or anxiety of what would happen if they didn't have a place to live, if they didn't have their own shelter to protect them. 
They were surrounded by nations who were not their allies, like not on their team. Uh, They were just out of exile, which was not awesome. And so that idea of not having a place to go is is anxiety-producing for sure. They had these historical concerns to contend with, you know, real legitimate issues. And in the same way that homelessness right now would not be awesome for any of us, it's not awesome for them either, right? They, they also have a lot of their platforms, and so their option is to, like, build a tent on their platform while they're building the temple, which is not going to be a quick process. Uh, and so none of us would really, like, yeah, I'll live in a tent on the top of the foundation of my house and, until I can do what it is. Because um, it really is a sacrifice for them to have to build the temple. And I think I can understand and have compassion for them of, of how rough of a situation this is. Like, God is asking you to sacrifice a lot, to be really uncomfortable for whatever the amount of time it takes to, to build his, his house. Uh, but I think it also reveals this, like, scarcity mindset. Have you guys heard of this? It's very popular um, on the internet. Uh, but it, it really reveals this scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset believes and is motivated in that there will not be enough for everybody. And so if there's not going to be enough for everybody, I've got to hold on to what I can hold on to, and I need to grab as much as I can uh, so that I don't go without. So in this instance, there's not enough protection to go around. There's not enough time to go around. If I spend all my time working on the Lord's house, I'm going to run out of, of, of time to build my own house or protection of what if these people roll in and I've got n- nothing to, to move into. Uh, it, it really is this scarcity mentality of that there's not enough. If any of you had siblings that were roughly your own age, you know exactly what this is like at the dinner table. Uh, I was, uh, there's four of us, and I'm number two, and I had, uh, one, two, and three were all teenagers at the same time, and uh, one and three are are boys, and so at the dinner table, you gotta kind of like, you know, put all the stuff on your plate and eat as fast as you can, because otherwise you're actually not going to get dinner, because no matter how much my mom would make, all of it would be gone. Uh, It's just phenomenal how much teenage teenagers, but teenage boys can eat. It's just unbelievable. If you guys are parents of ever those kids, it's just amazing. Uh, but this is the scarcity mindset. It's often motivated by fear or anxiety or what will happen if I don't have X? You, know, you can fill in the blank. What will happen if I don't get enough to eat at this meal? Clearly, I will die. Like, you know, that's what I thought when I was a teenager. What will happen if I don't have a traditional house? I'm not safe. If people come in, uh, I'm, they can just come in and steal my stuff. Uh, What will happen if I don't have enough money to uh, afford that really important thing that I care about? Or if I don't have enough time to finish that other important thing that I said I do, people won't trust me. What if our kids or grandkids don't get into that program that will lead them onto a guaranteed future of greatness? They won't be on the right track. I think the majority of the time, just like the Israelites, the scarcity mindset is concerned about really legitimate good things. Like it starts out of, you should eat. You should do the things that you say you're going to do. You should keep our commitments. You should have a good, take care of your house. Uh, Others, we should prep for our future. All of those things are really good, but the scarcity mindset takes it to this next level by putting those fears above all other things. Like, this is the most important thing to do. Uh, Whether that's what we have to do with financial, other financial commitments or other relational or social commitments, uh, the things that we're scared about become the the top thing, the thing that we prioritize amongst all. 
I think this, this mindset also brings with it a sense of urgency. It's not like, oh, yeah, for sure I should do that at some point, but it's like, oh, my goodness, right now, you know, I keep thinking of that dinner table, right? Like, oh, my gosh, if I don't get food right now, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to eat or, or have enough because uh, it might be gone. The scarcity mindset is, is prevalent, but it is not the mindset of the Lord. Like, we can see it in so many places, but it's, it's not God's mindset. The Bible starts out talking about abundance, uh, uh, and praising the Lord for his generosity in creation, right? Night and day and land and, and sun and moon and stars and, and humans, like creatures, all this stuff. There's like such an excess of goodness that God's like, oh, man, I need to take a break. Like it was so great. Like everything is so beautiful and, ex- and excessive. Later in Genesis, when, uh, when God blesses Abraham and Sarah, he tells them like, I've blessed you and so go bless other nations. Not just go bless the other people who follow me, like, because I've given you so much, be generous with all these other people. So the enti- through the entire, from Genesis um, 1 to 47, there's primarily this abundant mindset. There's more than enough to go around. God will provide for everybody's needs. Then in Genesis 47, we are introduced to Pharaoh in Egypt. He has this dream that there's going to be a famine And so he gets organized to administer and control and monopolize the food supply. It's here that this scarcity mentality is introduced. Uh, For the first time, someone in the Bible says there's not enough, and so we need it all. Like, bring it all in here. So we need to get as much as we can. Because Pharaoh and, of course, many others since him have been afraid that there's not enough good things to go around they took as much as they could get their hands on, no matter what the cost was to other people at all. As a result, their fear made them ruthless. It, it, didn't, it didn't matter at all to them what they would do to others in order to like kind of take care of that fear and to get what they thought that they needed. Uh, back in, in Haggai, for the Israelites, their fear and their concern was that if they didn't build their own houses first, that they wouldn't be safe, that... And that led them to disobedience and to misprioritizing their relationship with God. I just really think that we can all get stuck in this scarcity mindset that uh, regarding the things that we're anxious about, the the things that we can't guarantee a future of. I'm decades away from retirement, and I regularly wonder if I'm going to have enough by the time I get there to live for the rest of my life. Am I alone in this? Like... Uh, yeah, it's funny that I'm so early in my career, but it's a big deal to me. And money, I think, tends to be a lot of what that scarcity mentality seems to revolve around. Like, well, I have enough money to blank. Uh, but I also think it can be other things. Uh, will my health be good enough? Uh, will my relationships, my friends and family be what they need to be so that when I get there, they're going to be there for me. They'll be the ones to take care of me or they'll be what I need them to be personal safety, all of these things can slip into a scarcity mentality. Is there enough to go around? Uh, And again, we can hold on to some of these things way too tightly. Uh, I think of uh, high school girls with their other girlfriends when they make other friends, right? You're like jealous of the third friend because you want that person all for yourself. And I think there's an adult version of that too uh, that that can look like stuff with friends and family. I I think too, uh, is anybody a part of Nextdoor? that app? 
Yeah, do not join Nextdoor. Uh, Nextdoor, it's a, it's a neighborhood app. It's actually really awesome. And it's specific to your particular neighborhood. And it tells you, like, hey, you can get this free stuff. And hey, you can do this. But it also tells you, like, this person is stealing bags out of people's. This person broke into my house. This person, I was in my house and somebody yada yada. And so, like, I have a, like, personal rule. I don't read Nextdoor before I go to bed. Because otherwise, I'm like, oh, my gosh, today's the day. Um, but, but I think, like, when you know what's really going around in your, going on in your neighborhood, it can make you afraid to go outside. It can make you afraid to just chill on your porch and meet your neighbors or, or go into the neighborhood. Uh, so it's legitimate, but then I think it creates this scarcity mindset. Uh, it takes us away from things because there's not enough good to also protect me as I'm walking through the neighborhood, uh, at dusk. But there are so many things that can perpetuate this mentality for us. Uh, I'd say that anything that we're afraid of or that we're uncertain about what the future looks like, it's a good question mark of of how does, is there a scarcity mindset in there for us? There's something that we're doing to hold on real tight to it. uh, That that holding on to it so tight allows us or prevents us from being generous, from understanding the abundance that God has for us. So God straight away out of the book of Haggai, verse 2, says, you don't think it's the right time to build my temple? You're wrong. It is the right time to build my temple. You're just so focused on yourself and so deep in your fears that you've gone your own way. You've headed in the, in the wrong direction. Uh, and what he's asking them to do is to be obedient, to do what it is that he's asked them to. So right on the heels of that revelation, he brings another. The Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. So uh, in, in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, the Lord repeats the same charge. Give careful thought to your ways. You know how it is in literature. If, you, if they repeat something, it's like circling and exclamating. Like, so the Lord is like, give careful thought to your ways. So he's saying, essentially, how's that working for you? Like, you've been doing what you wanted to do. You've been holding on. You've been taking care of your your own self first. How is that working? Like, what does that look like in your life? And it looks like the verses that Faith read. There's reduced crop yields. There's drinking but always being thirsty, eating but always being hungry. They're not warm enough. Like, they just physically can't get warm enough. They don't have enough money. There's this picture of a purse with a hole in the bottom. Like, they just can't, like, get enough money. Uh, it's not consistent at all with the rest of Scripture to say that, that God would communicate that if you don't do what God will do, he will, like, starve you out or freeze you out or, or make you broke. Like, that is not what Scripture is consistently saying at all. It is consistent with Scripture that our actions have results, that there's a, a connection with our actions to, to consequences or to a reaction, whatever whatever you want to say. And I think particularly, and uh, with Amos last week, we saw this a lot, God cares a ton about what Christians are saying and doing, what followers of him say and do, more so than everybody else. And so here's this people of his who are doing their own thing, and I think that always bugs him a little bit more. It, it all, it's also very consistent that in, in how we invest our relationships, there there's fruit for that. Like if we invest well, there's there's good fruit from that. When we invest poorly, there's, there's poor fruit from that. And the, the same is, the true, is true with Jesus, same is true with kids, yada, yada. 
Uh, I think what catches my attention about this list, and so, you know, God says, how's that working? They're like, oh, not well. And so they immediately respond and start working on building the temple. I think their, their response so quick makes me think that they hadn't actually put two and two together, that these rough things were happening, they were being disobedient, but they hadn't thought that perhaps the rough things and the disobedience were together. Uh, I think that that's interesting. It's also very frightening to me because I think how many rough things in my life are happening because of disobedience? And again, I don't think that God's like, watch this. You know, any sort of like, can't wait for you to step out of line so I can smite you or starve you or whatever. I don't think that's at all how God works. But, but I do think that there is a cause and effect to it. There were a lot of years that I made very little dollars. Uh, when I first, my very first job, I made $975 a month, uh, which is because I'm older than a lot of people, but not everybody. Uh, but that was not very much money. And, and just mathematically, like the, the, how much I needed to live and how much money I was making did not add up. And so the, it just made sense to me that I wouldn't tithe because I didn't have enough money and God was the one providing me this money. And so like, that's on you. I'm not going to tithe. Uh, was how I thought. And again, I was a lot younger um, in those days. Uh, I didn't, and I, to be fair, I didn't give money to anybody. So it wasn't like I just wasn't giving money to God. I didn't give it to anybody. Um, but I was serving a ton, and so I thought, like, oh, that, that should count, right? Like, monetize that. I'm giving you a ton of money. Uh, but in that time of life, I also racked up thousands of dollars in debt, like almost $20,000 in debt. And so I don't know. I honestly have no idea if there's a connection with my giving and the amount of debt that I racked up, but I'm curious whether or not there was a connection. I'm curious if I would have had a heart of generosity, if how God would have provided differently versus I have $975 and that's what I'm going to live on this month, plus a bunch that I would put on a card. Um, so I don't know, like, it's, it's tricky, right? This is a fallen world and crummy stuff happens to people who don't deserve crummy stuff to happen to them all the time that happens but I also know that there are consequences to sin that when we do what God tells us or when we don't do what God tells us to do there are consequences to that so is it a straight across cause and effect I don't know but it really does make me wonder and make me wish I could you know have lived the life I did go back in time live it a little bit different and see if the outcome was different because I would know more uh, but, but I think there are places in our lives that we are consistently running short, that the two, we can't get the two ends to meet. Again, is that financial? Is that relational? Is that whatever? And I think it's a good conversation to ask, like, is there disobedience here? Has God told me to do something and I don't want to do it? Uh, in the book of Haggai, what was happening to them, the negative things that are happening to them, God draws the line. The, these negative things are happening because of your disobedience. Uh, I told you to do something and you're not doing it. And so you didn't want to pay the price because of the financial, the time, the, your fear, but you're still paying the price. Like you're still paying the financial price, the fear price. Uh, there's still not enough. You were worried there wouldn't be enough. There's not. Uh, so, which I just think is so interesting. The conversation of how connected our circumstances to our actions is a really muddy one. We, I, I don't think there's a like straight answer for all of us. Um, don't think it's an easy answer and there's an easy way to determine without a doubt one way or the other. Uh, but what I think was true about God in the book of Haggai and is still true today is that God is 
fully committed to pursuing all of humankind, and he will not stop. And he will use whatever resources he has to bring people into relationship with him, to bring people back into relationship with him. He's creative. He used the exile and in, in a lot of ways that worked. He used famine in a lot of ways that worked. He, he won't stop uh, to, to get people in relationship with him. I think equally, uh, generosity of any sort is, is a blessing. That giving away anything, God meets us in those places and, and is a blessing. So it really does seem to go both ways. Uh, I was talking to one of my friends recently who, she's one of those people who, I'm, I'm really not like this, but she's one of those people who you meet and she's just like a pure good human being. Like she cares a lot about you. If you didn't know her and you just met her on the street and you left her presence, you'd be like, I think that girl's a Christian. Like she just is like has that like aura and sense about her that you like want to be in her presence. And she's been a Christian longer than that I have the entire time I've known her. Uh, we met in college. And uh, for the last several years, she's been saying about how distant she feels from God, and which is shocking because she's just such an amazing, like, woman of God. But she's been saying, like, I'm so distant, I'm so distant. And then a couple years ago, she said, I, I don't, like, get anything out of the Bible anymore, so I've just stopped reading the Bible. Like, I do other things. I pray. I do whatever. But I haven't, I'm not reading the Bible anymore because I just don't get anything out of it. So I'm like, oh, okay, great. Um, and so this year when I, I saw her, I was like, hey, how's it going? Like, you know, after we did all of the pleasantries, hours later, I was like, hey, how are things with God and you? You've been talking about this for a couple years. And she said, well, this fall, uh, last fall, she goes, I just was like, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. I don't want to read the Bible. I need some accountability to read the Bible. So I joined a Bible study. And I was like, going to do it because I knew I was being obedient. And I was like, how's that going? She's like, it's awesome. Like, things are great. And I was like, thinking of this, I was like, I wonder if those two things are tied. Uh, And honestly, I legitimately don't know. I think there are plenty of people who have awesome lives and are really connected with God who are not reading the Bible as much as they should. For my friend Carrie, it's been not there, different person. Uh, it, It has been a huge blessing to her that she would say, I walked in obedience and God met me in that place. Like, I don't think the distance is 100% gone, but it is shortened significantly for her. And that's super encouraging to me. In Haggai, God says, be attentive to my directions and guidelines. And then he says, check out, check it out. How is life working for you? Uh, Where are there places that you're not being obedient? Are there places that, again, the two ends just aren't meeting, that there's a gap there? So finally, the Lord says, the Lord Almighty says, I am with you. So uh, in verse, chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord just says, I'm with you, declares the Lord Almighty. So once God points out to the Israelites their lack of obedience and the connection of the gap in resources and their lack of obedience, they jump on it, start working, it's not all roses for them. Like some people are super afraid of, uh, of building because it's not going to be as awesome of a temple as the old one was and so it feels kind of dumb that they're building this less awesome temple. So they're still doing it. Don't feel awesome about it. Other people, (laughs) like literally in the book of Haggai, they say like, I've been doing this for three months and you're not blessing me, which again, feel for them, right? You go, I feel like that all the time. Like I went to Bible study three times in a row. Why is life so hard? Because I'm in the Bible. Um, But uh, totally feel for them. So uh, what we see is that... uh, where are we in time and space right now? Oh, here we go. Um, yeah, so, so God points out to them 
uh, they, they jump back in. In, in response, Haggai prophesies this beautiful future for them. They, he talks about the glory of the temple being way more than it was in the original temple. He talks about their future being like unprecedentedly wealthy, that there will be coins of gold and silver, that there will be peace, like overwhelming peace everywhere, and that the, the people of Israel will be led by a great leader. In, in chapter 2, verse 23, they identify that leader as Zerubbabel, who's the like governor of, of, of Ju- uh, Jerusalem at the time. <clears throat> so that's who they identify. But he like draws this incredible picture of their future. And these words are like great motivators for them to keep on keeping on because they can see now what they were so worried about is this amazing future and uh and he's telling them be generous obedient faithful people because this is what your future will look like none of that stuff happened in their lifetime none of that stuff happened in anybody's life who heard these these words the temple was finished roughly 20 years later in 516 bce and then it was destroyed again in 70 a.d to never really be rebuilt uh, again, no treasures were ever brought to the temple in that magnitude. Uh, there, you know, there were offerings and things like that, but not to the extent that, that Haggai was talking about. Zerubbabel just like drops out of sight. Like you don't really hear about him again. We don't know. He just slips away. And this, I think, is like the crux of our biggest fear, that God tells us we're going to have all these awesome things, but what if it doesn't really happen? Maybe I should dial it back to that scarcity mentality and like gather all these things because when this amazing, beautiful prophecy was given, none of it happened at all in their lifetime. Maybe there really isn't enough and we need to, to, um, to get a bunch. Uh, I think we can be torn apart with this conflict between us, or within us. Like We know this abundant picture that the Lord offers and, and is like drawing for us, but yet we also know that there's true fear that drives this scarcity uh, mentality. There's a, a powerful message in our culture that you don't have enough, that you need to get more, that you need that one more thing or one more relationship or one more. Uh, that fear ultimately brings out the, the greedy, mean, like unneighborly portions of ourselves. When we live into that scarcity mentality, but I think we do spend the rest of our lives trying to sort out the ambiguity. Like, you call us to this thing, and sometimes it's not my reality, and sometimes it hasn't been my reality for the last X years. Matthew 6 ties this conflict of, I know what I'm supposed to be, but yet I know what I'm experiencing together really well by saying that we can't serve both God and money, that one of them, only one of them, can be our guide, And then he immediately goes on to address why we're so tempted to let money guide us. In verse 25, he says, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat, drink, or wear, if God cares about the birds of the air, he'll most definitely care for us. And so he's saying, I get why you're struggling with uh, whether to follow God or money, because you're thinking about your life, and you're thinking about will there be enough. And I think we do ask that question, like, will he? Like, you say that there'll be enough, but but will he? Are you sure that there's going to be enough? We have the benefit and can be encouraged by time and hindsight to look back uh, over the history of time to the the prophecy that Haggai gave. And it wasn't fulfilled at all in his lifetime, but it was completely filled by Christ. Christ declared himself the new temple. 
Uh, He brought riches and peace into our world in a way that we've never known. And he still rules us as a great leader. The genealogy of Luke identifies Zerubbabel as in the line of Christ, uh, which is amazing. The abundance of God is true, but it asks us to live a life that remembers that no matter what our present circumstances are, that we originate in the magnificent, inexplicable love of God who, who loved the world into generous being, that out of all of these gifts, uh, his generosity created the world. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, Through the grace of Jesus, he who was rich became poor, so that through his poverty we could become rich. Our lives begin in God's abundance, and we know that they will end in God's abundance that nothing can separate us from his love. So we know about the beginning, how God started. We know about the ending, and I think that gives us a pretty uh, helpful paradigm for what the present tense can look like for us, that that we can live according to an ethic that we're not driven or controlled, uh, we're not anxious or frenetic or greedy precisely because we have a sufficient home that's at peace, that we can care for others in the way that we've been cared for, that we can be just as generous with others because of how God has been generous to us. I think that means, therefore, our faith, our ministry, and our hope are in the creator, that he will empower us to trust him when we're in those tough places of, is this enough? Am I going to have enough? That he'll empower us to trust his generosity and to be generous people so that there's enough for everyone, that we can be generous with others. And again, there is a financial component to that, but there's also a social component to it. There's a time component to it, that we want to be across the board generous people. The power of the worldly kingdoms and the messages that we hear are of scarcity. Like, you can't watch TV for one second, or uh, do you have an app on your phone that tells you how the the Dow Jones is doing? Like, and so you're like, ooh, 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 uh, like depending on where your your money is. But there is this really strong message of scarcity around us. But the outcome of history is set. It's sure, and we know that we can trust in God's abundance. That no matter what happens, that there is a ton of abundance and more than enough for all of us. He's been so generous to us. There will always be enough. And when we're in those times of scarcity, I hope that we remember this. I hope that we tell our friends that there will always be enough because of Christ, uh, because that's God's heart for his people. Join me in prayer. Lord God, uh, there are places that we can think of in our lives right now where we don't think that we have enough. Uh, and, And again, whatever topic that is, whatever Uh, It is that that you're calling us to, Lord. I pray that we would not be disobedient out of that space. Uh, In the places that we are, where we're holding on to more, we're not following you the way you're calling us to, please show us that. Uh, Please be the courage that we would need to, to make the changes. And please be in that space of fear, Lord, that we would be able to wrestle with it. Uh, to lean into you, and that you would be enough to hold us as well as to provide for us. In your name, amen.